Welcome to Sportonomics, presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm Jake Kranz. And today, Jake, we'll be talking about accessibility in sports. We'll hear from a new friend of the show and Brooklyn Nets graph designer, Thomas Northcutt, on the future of sports design. And at the end of the show, we'll make some predictions for the remainder of this year's sport calendar. But first, we have to talk about the giant that's lurking in the shadows right now of streaming. And that's because Netflix is trying and has been failing for the past two years to get into live sports, which was included as recently as last November with the platform bidding for streaming rights to the ATP tennis tour for some European countries, including France and the UK. But they ended up dropping out of that race. Around the same time, it was also reported that the company was in discussions uh, for bidding over events like the UK right to the Women's Tennis Association, some cycling competitions, and even Formula One, which they, of course, lost out to ESPN, who ended up having to pay $90 million per year for the next five years for those rights. Uh, and even as far back as 2021, Netflix was in talks to fully acquire the World Surf League. And according to Reuters, Netflix executives have even considered buying lower profile leagues to avoid the ballooning cost of bidding for live sports rights with the hopes that their platform could boost lesser known sports franchises given its size. And recently, news of Netflix acquiring live sports have heated up once again, as this past week, it's been rumored that they're nearing a deal to stream a celebrity golf tournament this fall with both golfers and Formula One drivers who, you've guessed it, Jake, would feature celebrities from the Netflix docuseries Full Swing and Drive to Survive. So, Jake, as streaming platforms like Disney are cutting costs in 2023, why do you think Netflix is doubling down on the most expensive type of content? Uh, well, I personally don't think they're going to get into live sports anytime soon. Okay. Um, I know like they've they've tested the waters a little bit and they've been involved in some of the conversations and negotiations that are taking place, but they've also been really adamant and very very persistent in their positioning around the investments that they're making and they they will not go into something as a loss leader whereas all of the other big media brands like Disney through ESPN and just as Disney in general um Hulu uh there, there's several other sports streaming providers that are out there like Flow Sports um that are just losing money hand over fist right now because they can exactly. uh, because because they, they they raise a ton of money in order to do that um and and Netflix just refuses to do that and they've been very clear about that and, and that's that's okay so I, I don't know I, I don't know if they're going to wander into the live sports space just yet um, their their infrastructure isn't really set up for for live streaming anything either and I'm sure they'd they'd have no problem setting that functionality up uh, that, that's, that's not necessarily true I, I don't know if you were a, a fan of love is blind but they tried to execute on I believe what was the first ever live Netflix event in which they yeah. aired this reality TV show reunion live on a Sunday night. And it ended up not showing up for two hours um, later than the scheduled time because of reported technical difficulties. So yeah, I think even then people might They'd be get it eventually, about their though. ability. Of but, course. Yeah. Of course. Right. Right. In the short term, like they, 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 they're a company that makes billions of dollars in net profit every single year. They'd be able to figure out a way in order to go live with, with something um, I, I do I do think that they are absolutely going to continue to make major investments into the production side on the longer form sports docu series like Drive to Survive or Full Swing. Like those have been extremely profitable ventures for them. They have brought a ton of people onto the platform. Um, and when I think of Netflix in the last twelve months, 
frankly, those are the only things that I think about. Like they, they've, they've had a major issue in losing a lot of the IP that, that really built out the Netflix platform because all of the, the IP holders started launching their own streaming, streaming platforms themselves. Right. And so them having the ability to have really well produced long form, uh, docu-series that is also that are also connected to really interesting IP I think has been a really great move for them and looking at like the golf space specifically they've been able to leverage the IP of multiple brands and focus on like the game of golf instead of just being tied to just the PGA or just live at, at like the perfect time for them to be able to leverage both sounds like they probably won't need to worry about that now that the two things are coming together but right. um either way like they're just going to continue to invest into the sports things that are profitable for them. And they're going to continue to be in the conversations for the streaming rights and the other intellectual property that these leagues and teams have until they figure out a pathway that is profitable. And, 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 and until that day comes, they just won't make an investment there. So it's interesting. You're, you're right. Netflix makes five to six billion dollars every year in, in annual operating uh, profit. And some of their competitors like Paramount Plus, Discovery, Disney Plus, Comcast, their strand their standalone streaming products are not yet profitable. And a lot of those companies don't believe they'll be profitable until 2024 and 2025. So it, it does t- it does seem like Netflix has taken maybe a bit more of a conservative approach. And when asked about this, um, Ted Sarandos has even mentioned that they're not in the you know, live sports business. They're in the making money business. Uh, when asked why they haven't. Most businesses are successfully bid on well i mean yeah it's not true though right there's these Mm -hmm. these platforms that are sort of shelling out for for the right to live sports with hope that they'll return eventually i'm curious jake on your thoughts like to me this seems like netflix wants to vertically integrate into sports in a way that they can capture some of the benefit they're seeing by for example promoting the growth of golf if you could imagine that netflix then also owns the rights to some of these sports that it's performing uh, promoting you could see how that returns in excess of just having something like full swing because i think that's a nice piece of content it's maybe something that drives an an uptick in subscribers for uh, a company like netflix but in my opinion i I think they're probably in the home run hitting stage to call back in an episode we did a couple weeks ago about espn um to start looking at parts of the business that can really make an outsized impact rather than just saying okay we're going to do another marginally beneficial sports docuseries yeah, I don't know what that looks like yet for Netflix. Like it could, it could be um, becoming a conglomerate and starting to make investments into the different sports properties. So they have, they have that as a potential pathway. So let's let's look at the the Live and PGA example. They now have a for profit company that they can place an investment into theoretically, and I'm sure that if the opportunity presented itself, PGA Tour and Live Golf and their newly found company would be okay with a big company like Netflix investing into them um, with the condition that they continue to make all this long-form content around golf by way of their docuseries called Full Swing, and they could just do that every single season. And so I, like, I see that as a pathway. I also don't know if that's something that Netflix wants to get into. I think I, I, I think that they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out right now too. Like they're in a massive holding pattern For the last 10 to 15 years, they've been the disruptors in the industry, and now they're being caught up to uh, by by everybody else. And now it's like, all right, well, we'll, 
right right it's like what do we what do we do now like we we've we've completely reinvented our model twice um and, and reinvented the way that content is consumed twice by people in north america and now across the world and now they need to figure out okay do we just continue to do that same thing or are we going to try to be the disruptors again and reinvent our entire business model um and and somehow like vertically integrate as you mentioned into the things that are driving a lot of our business for us right now i'm not sure what the answer is just yet and i'm i, I what i am sure of is they're trying to figure that out too and i don't think they have the answer yet yeah, it seems in, in doing my research for this episode, the term trial balloon was thrown a lot, around a lot regarding what Netflix is doing around live sports. I, I think sure. a great example is... Not to be confused with the spy balloon. Alleged, not a, yeah, alleged right. spy balloon. But I, I think when you now play the retrospective on what Netflix has done in content in the last year, um, mm-hmm. you, you hear back in 2022 when they're trying to get the rights to the ATP tour or the women's tour. And they have since come out now with Breakpoint, which is their tennis docuseries on that same subject yeah. matter. So it, it was clear. Yeah, exactly. And obviously that was in the works while they're trying to bid on the right so that they could integrate down. But even then, we're not talking about Netflix taking particularly big swings. Like I cannot imagine that the European, you know, the UK and French rights to the ATP tennis tour runs even close to the amount that Amazon, for instance, had to pay for Thursday night football, which you know cost them eleven billion dollars over the next decade. And so it seems like they're taking a bit more of a, a measured approach. I'm just not sure if that's what their investors or you know maybe even now sort of declining fan bases or subscriber bases looking for from the company. Um, you talk about like Wall Street projections for the first quarter of Netflix this year uh, were estimated or projected to hit 2.3 million net new subscribers, and they came short of that hitting just 1.75 um, net new. Uh, and, and we talked about they're, they're the only profitable company, but I, I'm, I'm just not sure some of these like little half efforts or half measures to to make it happen will work out, but maybe they're just kind of poking into the soft parts, and once they finally break through, they'll really double down onto that into that sport. But it just seems like to me they're just being a little haphazard and I don't know how many sports teams are left for them to kick the tires on. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly what they're doing. Um, and maybe maybe, maybe there are still a few more sports that they can open the door on and um, continue to just test out to see if there there is a there there. Um, like you're seeing it across the, the streaming landscape right now. All of the companies that had capital to invest into streaming rights have it's all committed like they're they're like the 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 market for more streaming rights is just not there anymore um and so like i i really do like your thought around buying a a smaller company like world surfing league which they can probably do for for sure could a less than 100 million dollars which is you know for the rights of f1 is you know peanuts and they own the whole damn league at that point right right and i just i don't know if that's that's something that they want to do like it's it's something that i know espn did a little bit in the the early 2000s um with with the x games and now they're starting to divest some of those properties that they have so I, I i i don't know the underlying business case for it I, I what i do know is that netflix is looking for ways to strengthen their bottom line um, not just their top line growth and do that in a sustainable way and they're they're the, the way that their business operates has is changed substantially in just the last five years they went from a a growth company and converted down into a 
a, a net profit cash cow company. Um, and they're, they're trying to do that in every way that they can. The most recent action that they took in order to make that happen is they prevented you and I from sharing our Netflix accounts, Tyler. So we have to have our own separate Netflix accounts, which is a bummer. Um, but, but it is what it is. And, and it is likely going to have a very positive impact on the bottom line for Netflix and its shareholders in the next couple of months here. I think the closing thought on this topic is you and I coming from a sports content background, like this is a, a fever dream for us that a sure. content yeah. forward company could, could you imagine the league and then drive, you know, awareness around it with narrative type st- storytelling. And it's clear that Netflix is really good at that, right? Like we don't uh, doubt their ability to create a really compelling visual product that draws people in, gets people invested in the personalities. Um, like like we've talked about, they've seen the downline effects for golf, for Formula One, likely for tennis, and how they're able to convey stories on entire sports. I, I'm really curious how they would do that and if they would do it any differently for a league that they owned and, and for a you know a sports property that was maybe a little well a little less well known. Jake, do you have any insight on how let's take the World Surf League, for example, you think they would go about promoting that through content similar to how they've already done it with other sports yeah well i kind of want to take the question you asked and and give you a non-answer i just i don't know if it would be enough um that like i think i think what they're looking for right now is something that will completely disrupt what they're already doing and what what they're trying to zig while everybody else is zagging i mean you don't don't think buying an entire sports league would be enough like that seems like it would be a pretty big deal yeah, it would be it would be a big deal, but I think it could be replicated. Um, I, I th- hmm. obviously not in that same sport, but but like you you've seen and you, we've talked about quite a bit Ted Lasso, uh, the show, and that that's all through Apple, and they've done a phenomenal job marketing the show outside of the show itself, running like the the Twitter accounts for the teams, and and like yeah, you you, you could you could theoretically do that from the league level too, but I I just I don't think that. And this is this is such a crazy thing that I'm saying here, but I don't think that them buying a league would differentiate them enough from another behemoth of a company like Apple that could just go and and spend a billion dollars to to buy a league. Sure, but my pushback would be nobody's done it yet. It's not like sure. Netflix would start the domino effect, in my opinion. I, I think them sure. doing that would be going out on a limb and making a big splash. It would. Um, it would. I'll I'll turn your Ted Lasso example a little different because I, I think there is like an increased benefit, even if it's marginal for it to be a live sports property that you could actually go experience rather than just a, you know, fictional sports property that you can't really engage with past a, a digital sure. sense. I, I do think, though, to, to be devil's advocate to my own point that these sports leagues and these sports teams that already exist and they're they're already, you know, taking up the lion's share of our time and attention. You talk about the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, now MLS. I think they're getting so good at content that Netflix no longer has a monopoly over long-form narrative-driven storytelling, captivating content. You know what I mean? Like yep. maybe where before they did, and that was their differentiator, and then they could reverse integrate that into a sports league. I don't think that Netflix is twice as compelling as content that I see the NFL put out, and the NFL yep. is an objectively more popular and better product than something like a Yep. surf league could be that the NFL or that Netflix could afford to buy. So it's to me, it's like in that sense, I, I don't know if it would be worth it, but I still think the swing is worth it. Yeah, definitely for like a smaller, a smaller sports property that can't make that investment. Like what I think 
a, a company like Netflix has realized is that they're no longer just competing with the other big sports media companies. The, the, the organizations they're competing with are the sports leagues themselves. And right. the, the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, like they're all also launching their own streaming platforms for their own content. And they, they have all realized that they are um, not primarily, but one of the, the three things they do, they're a media company and they have these media rights and why not reap all of the benefits of owning those rights instead of shelling them out to somebody else? Like if they're able to do it in house, why not do it in house and um, take take all the the advertising revenue and distribute it internally without letting a a different media company get a piece of the action? Yeah, the the inside baseball part of this conversation, as you and I both know, is that still even though you own the team or even though the NFL owns the content and runs the league. They still, are, they still are really limited in the access that they get. And the media subsequently hasn't performed as well. Like all these teams now right. do some like behind the scenes, like weekday vlogs that don't get and much more than a couple hundred thousand views because they're not particularly compelling pieces of content from like a true narrative perspective. Like they're well-produced, they're well put together, maybe for a, a subset of really dedicated fans. It's a really good piece of content, but it doesn't have the access and the feel that a Netflix full swing documentary has like when the, the next season of full swing comes out and they've already announced that they had the news of the pga live merger captured on camera like that's so cool access that's so compelling that the pga if they were making content like that probably wouldn't want to show right because they right. they would never even mention it yeah they would never they, even mention it yeah. right so i think netflix their differentiating factor is no longer you know the the even the the monopoly they maybe once had on like really high level content i, I think it's their ability to say you know, we don't care how this makes our sports league look if they buy something like the World Surf League, but we are so driven with content first that even in spite of controversy, pushback from the athletes or the, you know, the stakeholders in our league, we are going to lead with content primarily. And everything that comes after that will just be a second order effect because what we're most concerned with is making really compelling content to drive people to take some action on the sports property where you can make the argument that the NFL NBA will always put the sport and the encore product before the content. Now, do you, do you think that that separation would change if they owned it? Like the 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 the, the, the delineation between church and state. Like it would. I think you'd have to. Like ideally, 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 it wouldn't change, and you'd have like you'd have the 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 media arm oh, that I, is, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, is, is just focusing on capturing the best story, and then you'd have like the the league office that is focused on running the best league that they can. Like I just I just feel like inevitably those two things come together and you end up with the same outcome and that it's 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 back to major league baseball or the nfl or any of these other leagues that and the way that they create content yeah if we were advising the league i would say your differentiating factor is your lack of caring that those two things might be at odds with each other sometimes you look at the bureaucratic behemoth that these other leagues have built up and there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of stuff that they can't show i think if netflix really wanted to make a splash and not only purchasing the league, but having it play out to its full, most beneficial effect, they would have to be okay with pissing off the right hand of, to benefit the left, so to speak. Yeah. Huh. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> All right, Jake, let's jump into some accessibility in sports. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have here. Yeah, so <laughs> this actually came from an article that was handed to me from my mom. So that's 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 a good a physical like printout or did she like it, it was legitimately ripped out of a magazine from the university you. yeah literally handed to me so I'm okay. like what is this she's like just read it and so I read it 
and it, it made me go down this rabbit hole. So okay. there are an estimated 60,000 kids in the United States alone that play adaptive sports on a consistent basis each year. Another word for adaptive is para, hence the, the Paralympic Games. Another word for Paralympic Games would be the adaptive sports games, uh, which brings together 4,500 of the best physically disabled athletes from around the world in tandem with the Olympics. So they have summer and winter uh, Paralympic Games. And typically the way that it plays out is like if the summer Olympic, like the, the standard summer Olympic Games would be in June of 2023 then the Paralympic Games would come maybe a month or two after that within the same calendar year um so I, I want to talk about three things in relation to this so the fir first thing is the total number of kids that are playing and uh, dug into this a little bit the, the the data came from a um University of Michigan professor uh and that there are 60 60,000 kids as I mentioned that play adaptive sports um and there are 60 million kids that play just standard sports um, okay. in, in the United States every single year. And I just, I thought the the interesting data point there is that like the adaptive sports kids make up 0.1% of the athlete market. And it's just a major red flag for me when it comes to um, like recognition and access to the things that they need when it's when it's such like a small audience size in the grand scheme of of sports, typically the for-profit companies would just like not head towards a, a market that is 0.1% of the total addressable youth sure. sports market. Okay, so just thought it would be easy to overlook. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and then the second thing I want to talk about is the innovation that's happening. So this is what the actual article was about that was handed to me. There is a University of Minnesota design student that has this really unique pathway um, into sled hockey. Uh, his name is Eric Jamison Eckling. Uh, sorry if I got that that wrong, Eric. I, I tried to do it as best as I could. And he graduated from the U of M last spring. Um, so he started his capstone project in the design school by trying to identify an underserved community in the hockey space. Um, Obviously, that data point rings a bell when you're thinking about an underserved community or one that is probably underserved. And this led him to a few sled hockey games at the Tria Rink in St. Paul, which opened his eyes to this really unique pattern. He noticed that people would be dragged in their sleds to the rink door, and then they'd have to be lifted up onto the ice, and that this process was repeated for every single player. I, like, I, I see that as a little bit demoralizing. Um, sure. that you'd have to like be dragged through the rink and then placed on the ice by somebody else. And so he took this information and built a cart-like system that enabled these hockey players to move through the rink by themselves and get on the ice by themselves. Um, best part about it is the name of the thing. He called it the assist, which I thought was a very clever name for a hockey product uh, that helps people get onto the ice. Uh, that is really clever. So just a, a clarification for my own, uh, to help myself, sled hockey is, is that the, the Paralympic form of, um, like traditional ice hockey? Correct. Yeah. So around the world, it's typically called sledge hockey. Okay. In the United States for whatever, we call it sled hockey, but I don't really know why, but it's, it's, it is a Paralympic form of, of ice hockey and the athletes play on, um, these, 
devices that essentially look like sleds. You sit down on it instead of obviously standing on skates, um, and you have two sticks instead of one, and um, you can skate around and play a game of hockey. And yeah, sure. I, I think this conversation brings up a, a really interesting point. You know, we, we both know about the, the the TikTok video I did a couple weeks ago. Now, um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Paralympics TikTok account. I think the general point that's interesting to me is where do you focus in a sport like or in various Paralympic sports on the disabilities of the athletes and and, and talk about you know really what are truly inspirational stories of of them able to um, overcome disabilities that you and I don't have to deal with on a daily basis in order mm-hmm. to do the same version of things that we just take for granted that we're able to do ice skating being one of them um, you know where does the line drawn from a uh, promotional perspective of these sports that you focus on that side of it you focus on the the sport that is being played um, and maybe there's like a, a third factor where there's some self-referential meta way that you can talk about these are paralympic athletes um, that do have some sort of physical disability uh, it was the the, the the topic of that, that video that I, I saw you mentioned there where um, if you look at the paralympic tiktok account you'll see that most very self-deprecating it's like very very self-deprecating exactly fits in that same bucket of being uh, self-deprecating it's certainly self-referential it it does not shy away from the fact that these are athletes with disabilities and on the surface you maybe look into that and say well they're they're making fun of these athletes with the disability one of the examples that i saw was a uh, a paralympic ping pong player um was celebrating was uh he was in a wheelchair and so he was wheeling over to the side where he's going to celebrate with somebody that was there watching him and he sort of ran into one of these like you know little pop-up promotional barricades and like knocked it over and the sound that they used behind it was sort of making fun of the fact that he rolled into that promotional barrier um, right. there's another video where a sprinter only has one leg and there's a tiktok sound that just goes like left left and it keeps repeating the word left over and over again and it was funny in that context because this runner only had one oh, leg. Had a left leg yeah it was clearly the joke <laughs> right so there's a lot of backlash um still is a lot of backlash in just the broader sports community you know broaden out to the the community of disabled people more generally about that question of where do you draw the line promoting athletes for what they're doing and what they're overcoming promoting athletes for just the play that's happening on the court or on the field and where is it appropriate to straddle that line and be a little bit self-deprecating um, and not shying away from the fact that they are disabled athletes. So uh, I'm curious to your, your thoughts, Jake. I, I can share a little bit about what, what my takeaway was, but um, I, I think it's like a, you know, feels like a touchy subject, but even in my research, I, I think there's not necessarily a wrong answer to have if you come at it from an angle of not being rude or um, disingenuous or you know cruel that there there is space for you know, comedy there's also space for, for sure inspiration there's space to recognize achievements like there, there's space for all of it and, and and that was you know my takeaway that the conversation isn't binary but I'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah I, I, I I'm inspired by the amount of levity that they bring to the content that they have I like I think I think that that level of levity and as you mentioned like self-referential is is something that you just do not see often in the other traditional sports brands like like, like we were just talking about with the nfl like there or, or 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 the pga tour they probably wouldn't poke fun at themselves or like call light to 
the craziness that is happening within the situation. Like, like the goal is like, always to be the best of the best. There's no room to right. be worse than that. Right. Like, like if the, if PGA came out right now and they they put out something about like the that that was funny about kind of the hypocrisy of what they're doing with Live Golf, and they released that from their own accounts. Yeah. That would be hilarious. And they actually they actually did just come out with something that was pretty funny in collaboration with. The NFL. Did you see? Did you see the guy get uh, get tackled by the other golfer after he won? I did see that. That's actually an interesting example. Um, because I when I watched that video, it seemed like that golf event really played into the fact that this guy was mistake. This golfer who was celebrating with another golfer was mistakenly tackled by security because the yeah. security guard thought he was a fan. And it seemed like there was a lot of levity and like joking around that event where it seems like they wouldn't want to promote it, but they lean into it. Right, right. So I, I'm glad to see it. it. It's not done consistently. Like this is it's yeah. such such an outlier. But to, to to give you a glimpse into what the clip is, you should you should first of all you should look at it. But uh, it is a essentially a hype video for the security guard as as, as like a middle linebacker. Um, so really really funny. Um, but but back to the the Paralympics conversation. I think that the the content depends on where it's coming from. Like if it was coming from somebody that was outside of the like the Paralympic community, probably wouldn't play as well and would be a little bit out there. Um, I think the fact that it is coming from the authority in the space is what really moves moves the needle for it, um, and and why it's maybe okay. And like I think that I think it plays over into pretty much every other sport as as I just mentioned. Like every sports organization should be doing this they should be identifying the things that everybody is already thinking and leaning into those things um, and having fun with them and just continuing the conversation and, and driving driving that stuff forward instead of just trying to make the thing that looks the nicest or have the people that are are the best and calling it a day there's always an argument to be made across any sport paralympic or not that the somebody is going to make the joke and again i come back at this where you don't want to come from a place of cruelty or being rude but you know to somebody's going to make the joke why, why don't you be the one that makes it and i i think one of the punctuating points of the paralympic tiktok count story is that that account is run by a former paralympic athlete somebody that will live with a disability for the rest of their life and so if, if anybody knows the line that is to be straddled, um, it, it's going to be them. But even still, it, it's maybe a personal thing, but uh, we live in an age where those things are going to get said and there are going to be, you know, if somebody came across the video of a runner with one leg and they decided to pair it up with the sound themselves, like it, it would have gotten made anyway. So why not, you know, lean into it, use it as a, this is the second part of it, where they can now use it as like a, a positive forward piece of momentum where, um, Another one of the videos I saw was uh, blind swimmers in the Paralympics will get hit on the head with these soft tip sticks. And the Paralympic account posted a video of that with the Bop It soundtrack playing over the top of it. And maybe that seems a little demeaning to the untrained eye. But what you realize is that as you look in the comments, a lot of people said, you know what? I never even realized that this is how blind swimmers were able to swim. It, you know, it's so That's cool right. that this is something that I could learn. And so That's right. you're able to take control of the narrative and spin it in a direction that you want, which can inevitably be positive. Whereas if somebody else controls that idea and that narrative sort of, I think can get degraded into areas that you don't want it to, to be sent. 
Yeah, for sure. L- last question I have for you on this, and then we can uh, let's let's roll into our conversation with Thomas here. Um, how do you think a small subset of people like this, and it's like a small industry, can be capitalized? So, so like let's let's use this actual example: the assist. the The piece of technology is a design prototype at this point. And the individual that did it was doing it as a part of their like capstone course in the design school at the University of Minnesota, but they didn't go as far as to like actually build a business model around it. I know that they, they were raising money by way of like a GoFundMe campaign, but like, do you think that there's a clear pathway to, um, to, to a for-profit company figuring this out and making this a part of their model? Like the, the, the one that comes to mind for me is an existing sports retailer or, or equipment manufacturer saying, Hey, like we also want to be in this segment and let's there's, maybe there's only 60,000 people that play this sport altogether in the entire world. Let's try to get all 60,000 of them. But I'm just curious, like, how do you, how would you think about that? If you were a company trying to support this in a profitable way, you, you know, I, I would, maybe use this as my entry point, as it seems like Eric, the student from the University of Minnesota did to understanding some of the other struggles that Paralympic athletes uh, or para-athletes might have to deal with. So where he he was not even aware that hockey players that played sled hockey um, had to basically get carried to the rink, um, he, he found a, a solution for that. And maybe while the specific invention of the assist isn't some multi-hundred million dollar company, one, I would say it maybe doesn't need to be. Maybe there's purpose over profit there. Um, but two, you could maybe use that to get your way into other conversations and, and find your way into other parts of this space that is maybe underserved in a way that, you know, other, you know, other sports niches are not. Uh, I think it could provide, you know, one, the brand as the assist or, you know, whatever he decides to call it with, uh, an authoritative position on like, hey, you know, this is a brand that understands the struggles of Paralympic athletes and, and we help design products across the entire spectrum, not just hockey, to help them succeed and achieve at, at a higher level. Um, and I think there's a lot of like goodwill that can be built up in, in a product like that and coming at it from a place of genuine curiosity and willingness to help. And my concern would be that some other company maybe comes at it from a, you know, how can we extract the most amount of profit here? But it seems like Eric has you know, come from a place of genuine curiosity and a genuine willingness to learn and to help. And I, I think that can help him drive a lot of goodwill into you know a product like this or other iterations of it for, for various other sports. Let's now bring on our guest, Thomas Northcutt. Thomas has quickly, Jake, become one of my favorite content creators on TikTok. And that's really not even the most interesting thing about him because in my opinion, that would be the fact that Thomas is a graphic designer for the Brooklyn Nets. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Nets have one of the most unique visual styles in all of sports. And Jake and I had a chance to talk to Thomas about what goes into all of it, how he even got a job as an NBA designer, and his thoughts on the direction of sports content. This was a great conversation with Thomas, and one that I think that industry veterans and aspiring talent alike can take a lot from. All right, we welcome on Thomas Northcutt, graph designer for the Brooklyn Nets. Thomas, thanks for hopping on with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So, Thomas, we'd love to get into your background on how you even got to work with the Brooklyn Nets. I love just some background for everybody. I, I personally love from like a, a social art board perspective, what you guys have done this season and, and the way that you've taken the brand. Um, and I'm sure 
just from a basketball perspective, the Nets have been a really interesting team to work for. So we can jump into all of that, but could you give our audience a little background on how you even stumbled your way into working for an NBA team? Yeah. So all this starts back when I was in college, uh, I had no design experience. I didn't know this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I was a student basketball manager at uh, Auburn University, War Eagle. Uh, I worked under Coach Pearl for four years. I loved it. And uh, I was also, you know, doing like jersey designs in my free time, doing stuff like that in like PowerPoint. I had a friend introduce me to Photoshop one day, just be like, hey, stop using PowerPoint to make designs. Let's try this out. And eventually like Coach saw me using it. Uh, this is, the, you know, into my freshman year. Uh, Coach Pruitt saw me using it, had me make a camp flyer. Camp flyers turned into recruiting graphics. And all of that eventually evolved into me falling in love with graphic design and, and social media design. I made a lot of really good connections. And by the time I graduated, uh, before my senior year started, I knew this is what I wanted to do for a living. Um, after I graduated, got a job at Rutgers University, um, spent three years there, loved it. Uh, the crew there was great. And uh, one day in 2021, I saw a job opening a tweet from my my current boss, uh, Jesse Gavana, who's one of the best in the business. She's an incredible designer in so many ways. And she... Um, she she tweeted it out and i did not see it anywhere else uh, I, sh I shot her a message asking a couple questions and fast forward a couple months and i landed the gig um, it really pays to be well connected on twitter sometimes uh but that's 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 how i got here i mean i love it i've been a basketball i mean basketball's been my favorite sport since i was a kid so awesome. being in and around the game is is amazing and it's it's really exciting to just be here at the highest level and get to watch it night in and night out what kind of designs were you making on PowerPoint way back when you started? You say jersey designs. I hope you weren't doing jersey swaps. That's oh, what I I don't like doing jersey <laughs> swaps now. Uh, I was mostly doing just like uniform designs. Like I think the one that I got I got uh, caught on was my buddy saw me doing just like a like an Auburn hockey jersey just for fun, and it was it. I don't even I don't even know if I still have that file anymore. Auburn has a hockey. Team. They have a club hockey team. And okay. I was like, why not? You know, it come up with something cool and it was not cool, but here we are. So it worked out. What were some of your early designs? I always love hearing how people get into a field like this because like reflecting on my own experience, it's such a daunting thing to say, I'm going to learn graphic design, right? So was there a place that you started to kind of get your toes wet and work into it? So when, so when I picked it up, it was the end of my freshman year, end of my freshman season. And over the summer, I was staying down in Auburn working camps and everything. And they had me introduce or they introduced me to uh, the graphic design team in the athletic department. They were really great. Um, all the people there wound up had gone on to do awesome things. But Tyler Trout, I met with him for a single day. He was great. He actually got me hooked up to uh, the Auburn like creative server. So on my personal computer, I could access all of the files that they had for every project, every team. And I did a lot of my learning by just going in and reverse engineering a bunch of those and just sort of seeing, all right, this is how they do this, this is how they do that. Um, especially, I, I loved Photoshop and like social media design or what is now social media design. And that turned into doing, you know, a lot of recruiting graphics, the sick edit sort of market, um, which uh, we, you ask any designer about edits and it's, you know, they're going to roll your eyes, but it's, uh, no, that, I mean, that's where I broke in originally. I was doing, you know, uh, like, recruiting pieces i designed like an entire like binder that we were giving to uh that our coaches had made that we would you know show to recruits when they came through with random stats random numbers um and eventually by the time i was a senior it evolved into like 
you know, doing like some social graphics for some teams where people hook me up with some freelance opportunities and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's sort of where it began. And, and whenever I didn't know something, the thing I always tell people now is YouTube tutorials. YouTube is yeah. literally a plethora of knowledge. It's so crazy how much you can learn just on YouTube in any field, but especially in design, every little thing you want to learn is right there. I completely agree. I, I love how you talked about reverse engineering too. That's exactly what I did. I'd go, go find ESPN, like quote graphics, like not even really advanced stuff. And just, you know, how do I get text to pop up on the screen? How do I, you know, get lines That's to create exactly. like all that sort of stuff is, is, is really invaluable. So you, you, you sort of fall in love with this and, and you find your way to, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. Like what was a surprising part of going from working collegiately to working at an NBA team? Like what were some big differences you noticed? Everything everything's different it's 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 one one thing that's really unique about working in college sports is kind of the power dynamic for lack of a better term you're working a lot uh, with coaches at the college level um it's the way that the sort of like structure is is there's like i i'm trying to think of the best way of phrasing this you know it's much more you know vertical much more like a regular business whenever you're working with a pro sports team you know whenever you're talking like um, you know, you, you see it more like an actual business, whereas in college sports, you are working with so many different coaches in different levels and different teams. Every team structure is different with one team. Your connect might be the SIB one team. You might be working with an assistant coach. One team might be this out or the other, um, you know, and, and just the dynamics in that. And not to mention the fact, like for me, I was in the athletic department. I wasn't doing like the football side of things. I wasn't working with one team, which Shout out to anybody who does that because that is a level of commitment I do not have. That's uh, you got to be on 24/7 365. But even in that regard when you're doing college sports, you are go 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 all the time because you start out in around, you know, uh, July, August starting to build out for your fall sports. As soon as you get fall sports postseason, that's that crossover into winter and you're doing winter sports and then the same thing with spring sports. And then when you get to the summer, you get a little bit of time in May and June to sort of chill. But it's not really like it's not as much time as you really think versus like, you know, at the pro level, like I'm I'm big chilling right now. I get especially <laughs> with the playoffs and everything. It's a lot easier to sort of get back, sit back, relax. I mean, I'm only working on draft stuff right now and building out stuff for that. Uh, I mean, when we will have things like, you know, schedule release, uh, 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 summer league, stuff like that. But it's not nearly as as, you know, pedal to the metal as it is the college level. Sure. Well, like as you're learning Photoshop and as you describe this grind that can be college athletics, how, how are you finding the time or the energy or the inspiration to work on your own stuff and to stay creative outside of, you know, what sounds like a pretty like creatively grueling job? You know, when I first came out of college, or, you know, when you're in college, first of all, and it, it wasn't, you know, my main focus wasn't my, my, my full-time job. I'm like, I'm, I'm very ADD. I cannot focus on one thing at a time. Like I'll have a, like last night I had the finals on and I was still playing like a game of chess on my phone. I can't focus on one <laughs> thing at a time. Uh, but so I, you know, in classes I would sit and I'd work on it during class and that's be the best. I would write notes and to, you can add my, if you ask my teachers, I was writing notes on what they were saying, but you know, I would do that. And then I would, you know, I would work on stuff in class. And then when I got to doing it full time, um, at the very beginning, you know, I'm fresh out of school. I was still jazzed up, really excited. I was new to this industry. I really had a lot of momentum to do that. And as time's gone on, you know, I've found it to be a little bit more challenging to continue to do the exact same thing as I'm doing in the office every day. So for me now, it's kind of shifted to where it's, you know, I'm not doing so much of it. And 
it's also so much less for me of, you know, trying to get people's attention. That was part of what it was before was trying to be like, Hey, look, I'm getting better. I'm trying to move up. I'm trying to, you know, improve on myself. And now I'm doing those things, but I'm in a position where I'm not, you know, actively trying to, to go out there and be like, Hey, somebody want to, you know, get me here, there, anywhere. Um, and so, you know, and with time, you know, I have less time now to work on that stuff, but, you know, I try to make time and I try to do it over different things. It's not always just sports. Um, you know, recently I've started, uh, doing like a hand lettering book to get better at hand lettering, uh, when I'm like in my, because like, I, I can't draw a straight line. I am the, if it wasn't for computers, I would be so bad at designing things. Uh, or, or, you know, I, I'll do music lyrics. I recently did like a, 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 for a personal one. And, and if I'm being honest, another thing that's really given me the energy to do it again is TikTok, you know, yeah. finding TikTok and being able to post on TikTok has been so much fun because it's given me this sort of like new life to really want to dive in and, uh, continue to create new content, talk about the things that I've done in my career. There's the motorcycle I was talking about before we started, uh, the, uh, but no, anything like that, like, like just finding new ways to create and sort of pushing myself creatively in like a video space has really kind of given me a new life in the last couple of weeks and months to, to keep sort of grinding in my personal time. Thomas, how, how do you, how would you describe or define creativity? And then how, like, could you, could you share where you think it comes from? Cause, and, and I'm speaking from, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of definitely the odd man out in the conversation of the three of us right now i am very much so nuts and bolts guy if you gave me a graphic to try to design i would like use i don't even know times new new roman probably to, to maybe powerpoint i would probably start with powerpoint and that's about as far as i would get so i'm just I, I, i'm curious about those two things like how would you describe creativity and then where do you think it comes from that that is a great question that I, I have never thought of before. You know, I've never thought, what is creativity? Creativity is really anything. You can be creative in anything. You know, you can be creative in uh, so many different facets. Like, I, I think, like, right off the bat, some of the most creative things in sports are, like, minor league marketing nights and, like, having to come up with, like, these crazy promotions. You can be creative in how you, you know, are, are selling something and how you're creating something and how you sort of just see everything. Creativity is not exclusive to, you know, video or graphics or the sick edits or whatever you're sort of talking about. Creativity is, you know, running a business. Creativity is doing anything like that. But specifically for me, when it comes to like where it comes from, uh, it comes from a love of the game. That's where it starts. You know, a love of sports. I was a, I was a sports kid growing up. Uh, I, I moved around a bunch as a kid, and uh, the one thing that I always had consistently was was sports. So that's where a lot of it comes from for me, and just sort of the love of the game and a love of the love of sports and uniforms and everything like that, all the little things that make it up. But you know, it comes from so many other things. Uh, a big thing I try and, and tell people uh, when they ask me for advice on you know where to look for inspiration is to look at stuff like magazines i love looking at band posters i love looking at architecture uh, uh you know walking around and just seeing buildings is is such a great way of sort of like expanding and sort of seeing new new things in different ways i have friends that'll look at you know the the silhouettes of shoes for your inspiration they'll look at you know uh, clothes you you name it. it creativity can come from anything and as a sports designer it's really important to pull from outside of sports for uh, some of your inspiration because if you go too sports heavy then it's going to start to look like what everybody else is doing. And that's, that's the, the goal is not to make what everybody else is making. It's to build your own brand and build something unique to you and your team or your brand. 
it, it's almost so like this AI feed, feedback loop that I feel like we're seeing. No, no worries, Jake. Where like if you keep feeding these large language models the same crap, it'll just keep reiterating like a, a watered down version of, of the same crap. Do you feel like, exactly. speaking more generally, like the sports design space, Thomas? Do you feel like there's kind of been an inflection point to call it? Like I. I say this because I want to lead us in the direction of talking about like the Brooklyn Nets craft design, which I think is very distinct from what a lot of the league is doing. And I feel like you kind of get one of two camps these days where you get somebody that sort of goes, I'll call it avant-garde, although you're not, you know, completely creating something that's never been seen before. But in the context of basketball graphics, that's, it's a new concept. And then you have, you know, Jake and I talk about this all the time. Like you see, like, it feels like the same redundant graphics over and over again. Um, at all different levels of sport. So, like, do you think that we're at some inflection point? Do you have any, like, specific qualms with the way sports design has gone? Um, you know, honestly, I think what we're at right now. So when I, when I look back at the last, like, 10, 15 years of sports design, because if you really think about it, I mean, sports design as a whole has been around for a long time. With logos, with, like, you know, your media albums and your media media guides and stuff like that. But when it comes to like the digital age, it's really like in the last 10, 15 years, you know, at the beginning, we when we first started out, it was one way and, and people were able to sort of do anything. And it was the first time that people had seen things. And now we're getting to a point where I, I feel like it's, it's a yes and no answer where, yeah, there's a lot of places that are kind of doing the same thing and it can be frustrating to see. But there are also a lot of really great teams that have this opportunity to build their own brand, build their own unique thing. And I mean, yeah, you're always going to have some element that's going to be similar because I mean, it's sports. You can't go too far outside of outside of this realm. But I feel like when it comes to, you know, what what we're sort of at these days, it's a conversation I've had with people before. Where, yeah, it's we're in an interesting point where it's it's hard to can totally and completely innovate every single time because you know, there's only so far you can take things in this realm, especially when it comes to, you know, making content for a team. Um, but I think as, you know, we're, we're in this wave now where there's so many young creatives and new creatives that are coming into it that are seeing what we're at right now. And they're going to continue to build and grow off of us. I have so many, I know so many kids that I'm like, I look at them now and I'm like, man, you're going to come for my job and you're like 18 years old. Like, and, and there's, there, there are teams that are doing it. And it, it's such it, it's it's interesting to see who's sort of how everybody's sort of balancing it. This feels like a, I'm just talking and not really giving a solid answer. No, uh, uh, I mean, like, who, who, do you, who do you think's driving that those changes that you are seeing? Like, if you want to talk about, like, the teams that are going a good direction, like, where do you see them pulling their inspiration? You know, who like, is it downstream from any other part of culture that they're getting, you know, these oh, yeah, new ideas? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you, the teams and the, the schools that, and, and whatever that are doing the best are teams that are not, like I said, not sticking to that realm of sort of sports design. Um, I think about, there's so many teams I think of when it comes to just sports creative that are so good. Um, the first one that comes to my mind, uh, the best, the one consistent college team that has always done a really good job innovating has been the University of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And one reason that that is, and it's, it's sort of this other thing that when you get into it, uh, there's a lot that plays into it, but they've, they've had a lot of really talented designers that have stuck around for a long time, and not a lot of places have had a, one person there consistently. Nonetheless, an entire team of really talented people stick around. And so seeing how they've been able to grow, and it's all people who love the school, love Knoxville, love that area. And, and there's several other teams that are continuing to do that as well, uh, especially in like the NBA. I feel like the NBA, we are in this place where we get to really innovate the most. 
where, um, because it's so much more tied to the culture. Um, you know, I think about like, I, I mean, personally, we, we strive every day to be, to be the best, but I think about what the bulls do. The bulls are great. Uh, the magic do a great job. Uh, the Mavs do a really good job as well. The Lakers are always at the forefront. Um, and, and every sport also has its different energy and different vibe. I mean, just like a couple weeks ago, you saw for the first time I've ever seen it, ESPN made a post about how good two teams content pieces were with the Panthers and the Hurricanes. And that was such good photo manipulation and just so simple and understated. But it had this sort of energy that you can only really do with like hockey and football, where it's like we're coming at each other where, you know, it's it's really tough and gritty and has this really like kind of like angry energy versus like, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that with a, a basketball net. I can't do that. Like a basketball net is going to attack a, a person. Like, 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 I don't know. I can't do that with <laughs> nets and magic. That doesn't yeah. work quite as well. They're not as intimidating. Those are two like things you can't like use against each other. Um, you know, so it, there's a, there are a lot of teams that I think that really do a good job innovating and pushing the sort of boundaries with everything. And, and it's also coming to at a point now where we're starting to see teams loosen up with stuff. And you see, like, I think about, like, the Dallas Mavericks doing their, like, win meme. Same thing with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Or not Dallas Mavericks, Dallas Stars. They do, like, a win, a, a meme after every win. Same with the Cavs. And so seeing how people are sort of loosening up nowadays and allowing for people to sort of branch out, the places that give their creatives the most freedom to sort of do whatever they want are the places that I feel like you really see, you know, people shine the most. Just an idea. You could have it be a really, really big net. Just throwing that out there. It could work. I... I've been trying to figure out how to use a net forever. You know, it's one of those things where we've talked about it. Uh, we've been the net since the seventies. Uh, never once in our history has there been a net in a Nets logo. The closest we had was the New Jersey Nets logo and it was just a rim, no net. So it's a really weird thing. But when you look at it, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, I never thought about it from the perspective of like trying to personify the logo um, and, and the way that you, you described the Panthers and Hurricanes doing a really good job of um, that, that was like a really compelling series for like to speak to that example specifically, like what are the conversations that go on within an organization to make that kind of stuff come to life? Like what? Like to me, why do they choose? I, I think it's weird that they choose to go like super graphic heavy. Like it seems like there's a lot of other really stimulating visual elements, video, photo that they can compile throughout the season to get to a same effect but they went super graphic heavy like what in your insight what are those conversations like to get there well the first thing i'd say is a lot of these teams are doing all of that um you know a lot of these teams especially when you get to the professional level and you have these bigger budgets and you have these big teams you know we're we're doing video and graphics and motion stuff and you name it we're, we're working on that stuff um so a lot of these teams are doing these hype videos and everything it's just that those happen to get you know, everyone's attention. Um, but when it comes to the conversations, you know, it starts out with, you know, as a, even before the year begins, when you're trying to sort of figure out the direction that you want to take things, what your brand looks like for the year um, and what your sort of, you know, what your vibe is with, with it. And it's so funny to use that word professionally, but so much of what I do is like, what's the bot? Um, and so when you are trying to sort of build this brand, like for us, our, our like sort of motto, our brand the last year and what we're going to continue to build with is the Brooklyn way. And, you know, what does that look like? How do we embrace our city, embrace the culture, embrace what basketball means to us? And when it comes to what we're doing, you know, um, I, I don't necessarily see it as us being like, um, 
you know, hey, we're gonna try and you know we're we're attacking people. We're it's not this really gritty thing, but that's also not the sport we play. You know, basketball so much more of a of a finesse game, so much more, you know, individual skill and not so much hitting people and and this really high intensity, high energy back and forth energy that is the playoff hockey, which I love playoff hockey. It's it's so entertaining to watch. But so you know, a lot of these conversations start at the beginning of the year and how the brand is sort of built and what your direction is with that. Um, and throughout the year, you know, it's just constant conversations with, you know, what's, what's the, what is the team? What's the energy on the team? You know, how are you best telling the team of your story or the story of your team? Uh, you know, all of our teams or everybody is in this field is a storyteller. And we're trying to tell the story of an organization, of a fan base, of, of our team. And so, you know, you want to embody that, you know, if our team is, one way we want to we're going to spin our graphics a certain way versus another you know um having just different guys on your team can sort of mix up what your content looks like the sentiment of your fans and like what sort of the energy you know if you're going into a game and it's you know if you're see if you're you know it's like a you look at what the celtics motto was with like unfinished business you know that's going to be a little bit more gritty and a little bit more you know uh you know focused on that way versus you know a team like us where it's the brooklyn way where we might do a little bit more artsy stuff we might lean into you know, like the the fashion and the culture of Brooklyn a little bit more versus, you know, you go out to like, I I, I can't say what all these are going to look like, but, you know, you us versus, you know, Boston versus like what the Thunder are going to look like being in Oklahoma City, which is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's lovely, but it's, you know, not the, you know, this like cultural staple out there. Um, and it's and it's got a really young, energetic team who people are excited to see. That's going to be a different energy from what we're doing. So, you know, it's a lot of just sort of picking the right narrative at the beginning of the year and building off of that and, and leaning into all of the different elements, you know, leaning into the personalities of your players. You know, we got Mikhail and Mikhail Bridges. I love Mikhail Bridges. He's great to have on our team. He's just like the ultimate good guy. We literally joke around all the time. He's just, he's just one of us. Like he's on Twitter tweeting about the Phillies every day. And I'm like, that that's relatable. And, and so, you know, how you build around a guy like a Mikhail and tell his story is so much different than so many other guys that we've had on our team before. Sure. I, you know, I think it's like when you look at the, the vibe you, you called it of, of the Brooklyn Nets feed, um, it, it's clearly very distinct. And you talk about how that sort of gets set within an organization. Um, and I think that's really good insight. Do, do you have like a goal, you know, as a, as a designer specifically to keep your social feeds looking one way or another? Like, like how are you thinking about, the look as it pertains to social. I also think Thomas is interesting. You said earlier where there's, you like made a delineation between like social graphics and graphics, I assume is the other option. Like, could could you walk me through like what the difference is and sort of how you parse through what things need to look like for social versus maybe not being applied on social? Oh yeah. I mean, so when it comes to what like I'm working on, so my, my main focus every day, like my, my like full title is social and digital designer. Um, so I'm mostly focusing on social design, stuff like that. I do help out in other areas and, you know, I love to work on everything, not just that. But um, when it comes to sort of like what the social feed looks like at the beginning of the year or before the year even starts, we build out a brand guide and we have it like I think ours this year was 100 something pages. And it's what our brand elements are going to look like, you know, what fonts we're using, what textures, what um, how we're going to edit our photography. Um, and how that translates over into like what our, our video color grading looks like and stuff like that, you know, and then it has examples of what it looks like. So at the beginning of the year, we sort of flush out what this look and feel is going to look like. 
and every team does it and then you build around this campaign and that's your campaign and that's how you sort of get like the general at least like the base for what your book is going to be and then from there you know for for what i'm doing i'm doing game day graphics stat graphics all this and the goal is to you know continue to build this sort of one look and feel and then continue to expand on it and make it feel different and fun you know for us with the brooklyn way and what we sort of went with this past year it was very much sort of you know where we're, it was 10 years in brooklyn so we wanted to be very brooklyn centered very simple very clean you know we, we're one of the we're the only team in in the league that only has black and white as their colors and i think we might be the only team in all of pro sports who just has black and white um at least in the united states before any uh, uh f- football fans come at me um but the uh so you know it's a lot of of you know, trying to build off of that and finding ways to differentiate with different uniforms. You know, this past year, we introduced three new uniforms. We had our new statement, which will be around for a while. Um, we had our Basquiat White City Edition uniform, which is fan favorite. Everybody loves the Basquiat's. And then we had our Classic Edition, which is you know, the best, best jersey in basketball. And so, you know, building out ways to differentiate those. And so where they still fit within that brand and they still feel like that brand, but they don't they don't they they have that slight differentiation where it's not a totally different look but it still feels similar and same thing when you get into stuff like uh all-star all-star has some differentiation too we build out a whole like campaign within the campaign for all-star and for playoffs our playoff look and feel is different um so there's building out all of that and then when it comes to like the difference between like a social graphic and a like uh something else uh depending on what it is you know there's different things you're still trying to build within your brand. So I think of stuff I've done this year, or like we build out logos and branding for our video series. Uh, we have a great, a great set of series on YouTube, like the bridge, which is like our, our big series that we put out a couple episodes on. I, I think we put out seven or eight a year. That's like a very big behind the scenes one. Uh, we have uh, on location from blank to Brooklyn, which is telling our guys story. We have so many series, so it's still finding ways to build these logos out and build these brands out that fit within our current brand with you know the similar fonts similar shapes not trying to bring in all this extra stuff where it looks totally different when you want to have people look at your stuff no matter what it is whether it's a poster a t-shirt uh a social graphic a billboard whatever you want to have people look at that and immediately just go that's the nets because of this or that and not just because of you know a player photo or because you know it's a photo or whatever you know your logos are on there but you want to have the same Again, for lack of a better term, same vibe, same sort of energy on every single graphic or every single thing that you're making. And yeah, there's always going to be differences. Um, there's always going to be stuff like, you know, like what we do for like our season ticket membership logo is going to be have some extra stuff on it. That's going to be a little bit different from what, you know, a, like uh, different T-shirts might have or whatever. But, you know, it's still just building within this one cohesive brand. So that way, when you look back at the end of the year, you compile everything together. You go, OK, this all fit together this all looks different and feels different and is still exciting and fresh by the time you get to the end of the year because it can get really frustrating to be in the same one look and feel for six months but by the time you get to the end of the year you are you look at it and like all right this all is cohesive and all sticks together in one sort of big package the question that i i've been thinking about as you as you've been going through this is like how do you make sure that across the board everything does look similar right because i'm sure there's multiple graphic designers there's multiple people that are working on video there's multiple people that are working on social specifically and then there's probably a layer of people that are just in the management side of things and other people that are working on 
um, physical print. And I, I know that is not what your job is, but that's where my brain immediately goes like, okay, you can do this as an individual and it's really easy to do it. I don't want to say easy. It's, it's a lot easier to do it as an individual than it is to do it as an entire organization. And so I like, do you guys have a master reviewer that is basically the thumbs up on everything that as it goes out the door? I mean, so when it comes to anything like that, um, I, I, I'll send anything I make, I send to my boss first, um, which, and she, she approves anything I make. Um, and anything else like that, you know, we are generally showing each other what we're working on and sort of making sure that it all fits within a brand. But, you know, at this point, all the people I work with, I, I'm one of the least experienced people in my office at this point. And I've been doing this. I just finished my fifth year um, doing this full time. So, uh, you know, I've been at this for a while. And so we've, we've been we've been around this long enough to know, all right, this is what this brand needs to look like. We have the elements in front of us. We see what it looks like. And it's just a matter of putting those puzzle pieces together. And, and one of the good things about it, too, is, um, you know, we know when something's good and when something's not, but we're also able to push each other. You know, one of the things I love about the people who I work with is they are constantly encouraging me and we're encouraging each other to continue to build and to, to become better creatives, become better designers and make everything better than, than what it is at that, at the, you know, you think it's done and, you know, how do you take it that one step further? And so that's one of the really nice things about having the team we have just so many really talented creators and who are just so good at what they do. Uh, we all just sort of push each other to be there and and still stay within this one cohesive look. Do you have a big design pet peeve as you look out across sports? Uh, I was just having this conversation the other day, and I don't remember what mine is. Um, honestly, there's there's one thing that that does bother me at this point, and it's when a pro sports team goes with a look and feel that is just like the ripped paper look. Um, and just because that to me is like, don't get me wrong. That is all reliable. That is like the staple of, of sports design. It's the safety one, but it's like, I'm like, come on, you can, you can build bigger than this. Like I, I want to see people push each other and grow and make this really dope stuff where like, I'm like, okay, I got to one up that. And the rib paper, it's again, nothing wrong with it, but it's just that it's that one that's been done so many times. Like, all right, let's, let's see something fresh beyond that. I mean, it, I just, I, I want to make sure that, you know, uh, somebody, somebody called something out the other day on a, a, a graphic where it was like, they were using AI for part of it. And I'm like, okay, we gotta, that, that's not like a full pet peeve, but you know, how do we sort of handle that? What's the balance of that? Um, stuff like that. And, uh, also whenever people screenshot, I guess you got, especially when I was doing recruiting stuff, if you, if a player screenshots a graphic, instead of just saving it to their phone, uh, dear Lord, give me the strength. Uh, <laughs> it's that that that's the biggest one <laughs> yeah no i i saw maybe we're thinking about the similar application of ai um i saw a designer on twitter mention that he needed just a a background like a desert background for um for some golf graphic he was doing and it wasn't the focal point at all there were clearly gradient layers put on top of it where you could hardly make out where it would have been anyway but he entered into mid-journey i believe desert golf course background and it brought up what was a pretty you know compelling uh, picture of a desert golf course if you would have looked at it alone but stacking text and gradient layers and cutouts on top of it you could you know hardly know it was taken or not taken and and his rationale for it was i know we maybe have this picture somewhere in our database and i'm, I'm sure you deal with this working in live sports you probably have millions of pictures that you could dig through but there might be easier with ai to to, to just whip something up that way do you do you have an application like that for ai that, that you think might be helpful or are you just trying to stay clear of it the best you can 
you know, it's one of these things, especially now with Photoshop putting out the generative feel, uh, uh, generative fill uh, uh, beta recently, where you know it's going to be a part of what we do, and and AI has always been a part of Photoshop. Photoshop has always just really been ahead of the game with that stuff. It's just that now, in the last couple of, I would say, in the last six months, the term AI has been thrown around so much. Where I mean, technically, yeah, all of this is AI, but nobody was like calling it that. Uh, like the content aware fill and the way that Photoshop allows for different like features that they have built in has always been there. And I love using like a content aware fill or uh, uh, there's certain ones like uh, to help like smooth something out that are like content aware fill is my favorite one. But with that kind of thing, it's just a matter of not letting in, in my mind for me personally, if you do something like that, where you're pulling like a, like a, like a, a background or something like that that's a small portion of it i don't i don't have any beef with that you know i think that's fine personally you know i know there's a lot of people who are who feel one way or another on it i i think that when it comes at least in my mind if you're like just pulling an ai generated image to be like a background texture or that something like that i i'm not worried about that you know if it gets to a point where people are just straight up using ai for the whole thing and it's either doing all the work or it's smacking the text on it that's where i get to, i get a little worried and a little bit concerned but at the same time i don't really foresee that all the way ever happening because if there's one thing that you can't teach ai ai it's creativity um you know you can you can feed it a prompt and you can tell it to do things and it can make things that look really cool but you it will never fully like have that same level of nuance and and creativity and just different stuff like that that you see within uh they use they, they like someone like me or, or any other designer can can bring to the table. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I want to wrap up here as you start to voyage into the world of TikTok. I uh, would like to encourage everybody to go follow you. I, I love when designers like yourself, Thomas, really get into the weeds of how they create a design, and especially when it comes with the allure of being for an NBA team. These are pieces of media that we consume by the dozens on a daily basis and to see how the sausage is made, so to speak, is, is really, really neat. What, what has been a, a fun aspect for you of, of journeying down the road of creating content while you're creating content? I think for me, it's really fun to sort of just be able to, I mean, I like to talk first of all, if my ramblings here haven't proven that point, I, I like to talk about things and I don't always get the chance to talk about stuff. So you know, just having the chance to sort of talk and explain why we made certain decisions. That's a big one for me. I love helping people out. And like, I was so lucky to meet so many people at the beginning of my career that really helped guide me down the right path that I'm, I'm still really, you know, in touch with nowadays that were so influential in helping me get to where I am now. And I want to be able to help people, you know, get to a place where there's, there's so many people who are interested in design and love sports and want to combine that. And it's, it's a viable career these days. And so giving people that sort of opportunity to grow and learn and just sort of share my sort of insights, you know, that's, that's a big thing I've got. I, I think from just working within sports, I, I have a really cool job. I, I wake up every day. I get to go into Brooklyn and I get to create content around some of the best basketball players in the world. Like I, my job is so dumb. Uh, I describe it the way I dumb it down to people is uh, I make pretty pictures for the internet. And like, that's like, I get to my, it, it, that's one thing for me where I, I, I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am. And I get to do a lot of really cool stuff that not a lot of other people get to do. So just sort of get to share that experience and sort of document it. And 
not just for everybody else to see, but as a, in a place where I can sort of look back on it one day and be like, you know, I, I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, that that's, that's really fun. And I think people, like I said, people love to see how this stuff comes together. Well, one thing that I've always been very passionate about when it comes to content, not from me, but from like a team, like people want to feel like they're a part of the team. People want to feel like they're, you know, in the locker room, like they're in the front office, like they know what's going on. And so any way that you can give people access is, is something that people really enjoy and appreciate. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm well aware that I, I work for one of the most well-known brands in sports and potentially the world. And that's, that's really cool to say out loud. And I'm, I never want to take that for granted. And so just getting to share this experience with everyone and be like, Hey, you know, this is, this is a thing that I got to do. This is how we did it. Because like, I, I never knew how that happened. Like one of the first videos I made that did any numbers was back in the fall. Uh, I got to design a basketball court that we use for like when we host college games. And that video was really fun because like, I, I didn't even know how to do that or how we did that until I did that. And like just that sure. whole long process and how long it took and just being like, Hey, you want to know how this stuff happens? Cause especially when you see all the comments all the time that are like, they should do this or they should bring this back. I'm like, Hey, this stuff takes time. We got it planned out. Like we're already working on stuff. Like we're already working on stuff for two, three years down the line. So this is how we get there. This is how long it takes. It's not like we can just be like, you know what? This guy's right. We're going to, you're right. We're going to go back to this right now. <laughs> but uh, there's so many rules of everything in place with all that, but it's, it's one of those really fun things that I just like to get to share the experience and talk about it and, and document it and help people get to a place where they're, 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 you know, excited to, to be in the same field in the same way I was a few years ago. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for hopping on. I encourage everybody once again to go follow him on TikTok um, at Thomas Northcutt. I, again, I'll just reiterate the way that we get to see what goes behind, like you said, some of the most popular brands and, and some of our most beloved brands of the world is, is really cool. And it's great to attach a, a, a face to some of the really cool stuff that gets made. So I appreciate the time, Thomas, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Jake, we're back. And I want to hear your predictions as we round out Q2 in the sports calendar. What do you have for me? My, I have one prediction, and okay. it is going to be something that I don't know if we're going to be able to see the actual outcome of it until like three or four years from now on, an, on like an average basis. But I think that the average tenure of a college athlete increases by at least one year especially in the sports with clear pathways to professional sports income. Um, do you want me to, to, to give my explanation as to why? I would love that. Okay, so this, this all stemmed from a, a research that I was doing into the NIL space, and uh, primarily it was around these NIL hubs that universities were starting to and are starting to roll out. Uh, starting with with Clemson's, uh, they invested a ton of money into infrastructure around supporting their student athletes in creating content, building their brands, understanding the terms of the, neg the negotiations that were they were getting involved with, um, and really maximizing on their potential as an individual while they're at school. And I think that NIL has certainly done a lot of things and one of the things that it has done is it is even the playing field for um, colleges and professional sports teams um, in, in the past the two organizations were 
competing on very different things. And there were two very, very different offerings. Uh, somebody could go to the MBA and know that when they sign their contract, they're going to get a certain amount of money. Um, and they would just not get any money from their their college program. And so the trade that they had to make was, okay, do I take the education now and wait a couple of years in order to see if things play out in the MBA? Or do I just go right now, cash this check and see how things play out here? Worst case, like I'm out, I'm out of college, don't have an education and I'll just have to figure it out on the back end. Um, and now what has happened is there is a much more even playing field. And I think that the professional sports teams are actually at a disadvantage because of the size of the budgets that can be opened up at the universities if they need to be. Um, these, these, these sports teams have um, primarily one funder, and it's the owner, um, and the collegiate organizations have several funders, all of the boosters that are a part of their organization, all of the, the, the brands that want to be associated with the players and the school and the the university, um, as well as the athletics department, uh, by way of the the school's primary revenue channel, which is normally um, normally tuition. So, um, I just think that there is a lot there there are a lot more incentives to stay in school, which is ultimately a net positive for all athletes. I think they're they're able to 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 make money that's comparable to what they would make at the professional level um, by way of other channels. And then they're also able to get the education that um, is just really beneficial for, for them in their, in their career if things don't work out in professional sports, even if they do. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I think the, the sport that this applies most to, in my opinion, is college basketball. That's the sport that you can um, declare the soonest or has the, the most dialogue around it in terms of like a one and done culture in which you literally go to school as a seemingly really transactional to thing the only because yeah only because you have to you know i think mm -hmm. if it was up to a lot of people they'd go right to college and or go right to, right, the, pros right and, to the nba yeah and even before this nil deal was was levied you you saw an emerging trend of players going internationally there was a there's like a group of players that would go into like an overtime elite league which is like a college preparatory league which fulfilled the requirement of being out of high school for one year before they could enter the nba draft or there were you know there's leagues in uh, new, new zealand in australia that players would go play for a year and then join the nba draft to forego that really transactional relationship of you know going to a college for what seems like a meaningless year um, of, of basketball in the grand scheme of things i think that college basketball landscape in you're right jake could change to somebody stays develops their game another year um gets paid while they're doing it I, I think there's this intangible benefit too of just being like a really good athlete at a really fun college you know like once you once you go to the pros it seems like you have maybe these additional responsibilities that college kids don't have you, you can i you know i can speak from that from a regular college kid perspective i can imagine how much cooler college would have been if i was really, really good at basketball at a school that had a really good basketball program. Oh, and so I know how cool it was. I was not one of the athletes, but I worked at the bar. And <laughs> when they walked in, the that, like it, the crowd moved to them. Like, yeah, it was exactly. so cool. It was so, so cool. So I think it's like this combination of all the benefits that you laid out on top of these sort of intangible benefits. And 
you know, some kids just, just want to remain kids longer. And, and the college experience is a, a really formidable experience and one that's really deeply ingratiated in American popular culture, at least. And so I, I do think that there will be like a, a tide changing, as you described, towards players staying longer. And um, I, I completely agree with you. I, I actually, to, to, to plug um, one of our pro- previous episodes, we, we or I talked to Tyrese Proctor, who is a um, international uh, basketball player from Australia, came to Duke to play, could have been a could have been a an, an NBA draft pick in the 2023 draft. Actually, put up similar numbers to Tyus Jones, who played basketball here in Minnesota, and then ended up going in the late first round, um, like 24th overall. They both had very similar numbers. Tyus Jones obviously played in an era where he could only get paid once he went to the pros, and Tyrese Proctor made the decision to stay an extra year, probably going to solidify himself as a you know top 10 draft pick in the in the draft next year, which will earn him more money immediately, but he's also able to make money right now in college and, and develop his game a little further. So whereas Tyus Jones had to leave, maybe get drafted later than he would have if he had stayed a year later just to get paid, Tyrese Proc- Proctor can um, can develop his game, stay in college, be big man on campus at Duke, which you know has national championship aspirations every single year, and he still gets paid while he's doing it. So uh, I think that's a that's a great prediction. When do you think, Jake, we'll, we'll see that trend? I mean, I, I think as soon as this year, um, you know, using the yeah, anecdotal think- example of Tyrese Proctor, but I agree with what you're saying where we're not going to have the, the full body of evidence, but I think anecdotally we might see some players starting to make that decision. Yeah, from from a from a like tangible perspective, I, I see. I think we'll see it right now. Like we've we've actually already started to see it a little bit in terms of like the, the people that have decided to stay in school um, and stuck around. From a statistician's perspective, um, when will we get statistical significance? Probably take a couple of years. Um, but but let's not let's not go down that path. You could probably get a, a, a good pulse on it um, through year one. And um, if you talk to any athletic director at the college level, they'll probably be able to tell you pretty quickly whether or not it's actually having an impact. I, b- I bet we'll see a story before the end of the year um, or before next NBA draft that from the athletic or front office sports that is happening. Okay, my prediction, Jake, um, a little callback on last week's emergency episode regarding the, the Live PGA merger. Um, I believe by the end of the year that Saudi Arabia's public investment fund will be invested at least in a minority stake in an NBA team. So so some quick background, Um, Adam Silver was on the Dan Patrick show fresh after that live PJ merger. Um, And and he seemed to be really warm to the idea of welcoming some sort of PIF or just foreign sovereign wealth funding into the league Um, as long as last year um, or long ago as last year in December, uh, the NBA made it possible for sovereign wealth funds to become invested in the NBA just in a minority stake. So, um, you know, like the PIF as of the December 2022 ruling um, couldn't have, a, you know, couldn't fully own a, a team or have controlling interest in a team, but they could own a, mi- a minority stake. And um, Silver was saying things about how people can often be you know, dismissive about the power of sports to, to bring us together and was sort of like batting his eyelashes at concerns that sports washing was really a thing that happened. Um, in my opinion, I, I think he's wrong. You know, I, I think that I understand where he's coming from, coming at from a financial perspective, you know, increasingly as these teams come up for, um, come up for bid or come up for sale, the only countries or the only, the only amounts of money or, or, or groups with money that can afford the ballooning rates of, of professional sports teams are going to be sovereign wealth funds. Um, a great example, I, I'm a huge fan of Pardon My Take, which is a Barstool podcast, and um, PFD Commenter, who is a huge Washington Commanders fan, made the note that 
the Washington Commanders for the last 20 years have been about the worst run football franchise that you could possibly have embroiled with controversy, lawsuits, name changes, like a, a whole slew of, of being run basically into the ground. And still it sold for a record $6 billion when it went up for sale. So you can imagine what a Dallas Cowboys or Minnesota Vikings or you know, Green Bay Packers would sell for if they went up for sale. And, and those are obviously well-run franchises that would probably exceed the value of a Washington Commanders. And so as those valuations continue to balloon, it's going to continue to price out the people that can buy teams. And at a certain point, the I would imagine that the, the, the rate at which these teams are increasing in value is going to outpace the amount of new billionaires that we're creating. And, you know, once Jeff Bezos buys a team and, you know, Bill Gates buys a team and Elon Musk buys a team, like there will be a point where we're out of billionaires in America that can buy teams and leagues might have to start looking to foreign public funds like the the Saudis PIF to to fund the teams. And that's where it gets really dicey. And so I think Adam Silver is sort of hedging his bets, understanding that, you know, he wants to make sure his teams are valued as high as possible. And in order for that to happen, he has to be willing to take at least some minority investment from, um, you know, from a from a PIF or something like that. And it, the NBA has also started playing preseason games in, in Abu Dhabi. So, um, you know, in a similar region to um, to Saudi Arabia, which has human right violations of it in its own right, maybe a little less severe than those that Saudi Arabia has. But um, you know, I think it's interesting that what I or we talked about last week, Jake, as a concern where um, I think I used the reference of a Trojan horse where like now all of a sudden I think the flood of money is going to come in from from the Saudis because they can point to the PGA and say, hey, look, this clean club brand that we're working with, we can't be that bad, right? And it's just going to start this slow evolution of sports washing and, and it might happen with the NBA next and all of a sudden the NFL is going to be like, well, they work with the PGA and the NBA, why can't they work with us? And And then I think they've, you know, the Saudis have have completed their goal of, of you know, turning their the attention away from some previous human rights atrocities and into a really impressive growing asset of of sports of, of sports teams yeah uh, well i i don't disagree with you i think the 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 bigger topic is like the globalization of sport investment and the opening up of these sports cap tables to private equity firms and so instead of it being just individuals that are on the cap table, you can have these organizations that oversee millions, sometimes billions, billions. in some cases trillions of dollars that are able to make minority investments into um, these these sports teams and franchises um, all across North America. And, and you also see this happening over in Europe and, and everywhere else internationally where professional sports are played. Um, the PGA was not the first. No, I don't want to say victim, but the first, the first, uh, <laughs> the first target for for PIF. Like there, not at all. there have been several investments that have made been made in European soccer already. Um, there are, I'm sure, several things that we aren't even aware of that they've they've made investments in. Um, but you're right. Like even. I, I, Sorry, even, even things like the World Cup happening in Qatar. Like you, you talk about Qatar not having the most sterling reputation, but still the, the the most widely recognized international governing body of football decided to play ball and let them build a stadium and and have the most prestigious global sporting event in the country. So it's not like there's an aversion to taking the money. And don't get me wrong, I think the reason I made this prediction is because I do think strongly that the NBA will, in other sports leagues too, will have to entertain the 
the money coming in. And I don't think it'll be a factor of them not wanting to. I, I literally think it'll be a factor that these sports teams are getting too valuable for their own good. And the only people left to afford them will be the Saudis and 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 you know Commissioner Goodell, Commissioner Silver don't want their teams to reverse course in terms of their valuation. You know they've seen like a five hundred percent explosion on average in the last decade in terms of their valuation, and those need to keep going up. And the only way they keep going up is if there's more money willing to bid on them. Yeah, the 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 primary role of the commissioner is to increase the valuation of every single team within the league mm-hmm. at an equitable rate, and this is one heck of a way to do it you know like from from like a sheer capitalism perspective what's a good way to increase the valuation on a scarce asset oh like let's find somebody with funny money that can <laughs> pay more for it basically um and like right. like it, it and it's not like this is one one really good example of it but the same thing has happened in in other places too um, I forget the name of the guy, but one of the Russian oligarchs came into, I think, was it Arsenal maybe? I think it was Arsenal. Yeah. And just just paid an obnoxious amount of money for the team and was losing like hundreds of millions of dollars every single year just to win. Um, and, and like to, to go with an example that's even closer to home, look at the Mets. Like that 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 is owned by a hedge fund guy. And he he's playing with funny money too. Like he just has so much money that he wants to see the Mets win a World Series, and so he's investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the organization to try to make it happen. He's doing he's trying to be the Yankees without the revenue line items of the Yankees. And so his logic would would go like, especially in these leagues without hard caps like baseball. If you want to catch up to a Steve Cohen, you're going to have to find somebody with deeper pockets and. There are increasingly few people with deeper pockets um, that don't already have some sort of stake in a sports team. And so, you know, I think that logical end brings us to PIF or some other sovereign wealth fund being invested in a major in, in major American professional sports in, in a really big way. So that's all we have for this week. I guess you'll just have to tune into to Sportonomics episode like 574 to, to find out if some of these things are right. But who knows? Maybe they'll happen sooner rather than later. Uh, all right. Well, We'll be back next week with more sports and business. Thank you to Aaron and Ryan McFarland for producing this episode. And we'll see you guys all next time.